On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames. Welcome to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how's it going today? It is going so well. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lance. This is the fourth episode of season three of our uh, triumphant show, Empty Frames, on art crime and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And in this episode, Lance, we talk to an old friend. His name is Bill Thomas. He does his own podcast that happens to be on our Crawl Space Network. But he's also been on several of our other shows. Right. He's hit the trifecta. He's been on Crawl Space. He's been on Missing More Murray. And now he is making his appearance on Empty Frames. He's got a lot of things uh, to say about many topics. He's a fascinating human being. The reason why he was on the other shows is mostly about his advocacy and his uh, search for the Colonial Parkway killer. His sister, Kathleen Thomas, was 27 when her and her girlfriend, Rebecca Andowski, 21, were the first victims of the Colonial Parkway killer. So that is how we made our introduction to Bill. And how does that relate to empty frames, you might ask? Well, Bill was in the area of Boston during the time that the heist went down in 1990. Yeah, and he also was going to write a book on the Gardner heist at one point. Not sure if he's going to. He said maybe on the book at some point. Um, But he did do a lot of research on it. And as mentioned, Lance, we've had him on our other shows, so we got to know him really well. And uh, you can check out some episodes that we've done with him on those other shows, Missing More, Murray, and Crawl Space. And also check out Bill's show. It's called Mind Over Murder. And he hosts that with Kristen Dilly, And she was somebody who was very reluctant to put her voice out there. She's a very shy person, but she's an amazing researcher. And the more they work together, the better that chemistry is. And right now they're really hitting a stride. Their chemistry is amazing. They have really good conversations and uh, they both complement each other really well. And uh, it's really great. It's a true crime show. They haven't covered the Colonial Parkway murders yet, but they will at some point. And uh, and he's just got a great voice, Lance. And so he did a bunch of research on the Gardner heist. He hung out with Steve Kirchin, went to the Gardner Museum with Steve Kirchin like it was no big deal, apparently. Yeah, I mean, if if you're listening to this episode, you're going to have to get past the fact that Bill just starts dropping names like crazy. He's He's dropping names like Red Lake Dutch paint chips fell on the floor of the Gardner Museum. That's how many names he's dropping in this. I'm totally kidding. He did meet with Steve Kirkjian, uh, apparently had a really good lunch, a really good conversation, and a really good tour of the museum. Right. And the rest of the conversation with Bill kind of unfolds like almost like a best of um, Gardner heist conversation, uh, you know, topics. You know, we, we talk about... The art, is it all in the same place? Could it all be together still? Was it randomly uh, thieved by those uh, two criminals? And is the reward price list a good idea? Don't say no. Uh, but so we talk about uh, all that stuff and and more with uh, good friend Bill Thomas. And so I hope you enjoy the conversation. We'll be back in two weeks, Lance. Who's next? We do have some very good irons in the fire, some very good potential guests coming up, so stay tuned for that. Thank you, everybody. Welcome to the show, Bill Thomas. 
Empty Frames is now... Wait, is Empty Frames now the third show that Bill Thomas has appeared on? That is accurate. Three shows of ours, Lance, and now four, at least four on the Crawl Space Network. Yeah. Well, at least, I mean, the hat trick is now complete with Empty Frames, Crawl Space, and Missing More Murray. I'm excited. Jeez, this feels like quite an honor. Few have ever had this honor bestowed upon them. Well, has, has any outsider ever had the hat trick like this before? No, I think the only one who would really even be eligible besides you is Casey Sherman uh, because he has written about New Hampshire and uh, an area really close to where Maura Murray went missing. And, uh, and of course, we could talk to him on Crawl Space about many of the topics he's written about. I get it. Well, uh, so I know that I'm going to try to ace out Casey Sherman for (laughs) at least for the moment. I'll be the only one currently holding the, the hat trick. I feel like Bobby Orr. <laughs> That's correct. And you've been on our other airwaves. Why, Bill? Uh, I don't remember. Which other airwaves are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you do a show, a wonderful show on the Crawl Space Network. But yes, the reason exactly. you got into this is uh, is quite uh, quite striking. Well, I, I, it's because the two of you talked me into it, I think. But my initial exposure... We can use that word on on your airwaves, right? Sure. Yeah, just um, the the action of it. We to, to crawl space and missing Maura Murray uh, was to talk about the Colonial Parkway murders, if I'm not mistaken. And then you guys talked me into launching my own podcast, and I pulled in the very talented. Uh, Kristen Dilly to be my co-host because I figured the last thing we need is another white guy with a podcast. So I figured at least if we had me and Kristen to balance me out there, we'd have interesting perspectives. And so we launched and we just finished episode 23 of our Mind Over Murder podcast. So Bill Thomas, thank you so much for joining us to discuss the Gardner Museum and the Stolen Art you have had some connection with this case, haven't you? Yeah, I lived in Boston most recently from 87 to 90, and I coincidentally loaded up some of my belongings in my Volkswagen GTI and moved from Boston to New York in April 1990, like April 1st. That sounds uh... close to the date of the theft. Yeah, so you were there in uh, 1987. Correct. Gave you at least at at least three years to plan in the city that the heist took place, and less than a month later, nay, a couple of weeks later, you pack up your car, which suspiciously looks like the car that was seen on Palace Road. Hmm. Yes. And then you were gone. You you fled to New York. Let the record reflect I'm nodding my head, which isn't really helpful on a podcast. All of those things are true. And what's our actual date for the Gardner theft? March 18th, 1990. Yeah. I would have left at the end of March 1990 with valuables in the back of the car. So how many times did you case the joint before you (laughs) left town? Should I also confess that I lived in Somerville, which was, you know, next to Charlestown, which between the two and, and Southie, of course, you know, these are crime capitals of uh, greater Boston. Note the redirect. Jeez, Bill. Are you confessing <laughs> which, here? What's going on? Which part? No, I can't confess. But <laughs> I, I, as I've said to you before, and to Kristen Dilly, my co-host on Mind Over Murder, this is the case that holds probably the greatest amount of interest for me in which I have no direct role. And you were going to write a book about it at one point, right? Yeah. I, three years ago, I actually was thinking seriously of writing a, a book about the theft at the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum. And then, of course, I started doing my research, which is what they tell you to do. And then I discovered there's a dozen other really good books already done on the case. So I kind of stepped back a little bit, although I did a fair amount of research and uh, traveled to Boston, uh, met with Steve Kirkshin, who writ- who wrote one of the best books out there, Master Thieves, the Boston gangsters who pulled off the world's greatest art heist, which 
is a real good read. Um, I met with Steve and got a private tour of the of the facility, and it it definitely piqued my interest. But I feel like the world doesn't necessarily need yet another book on the Gardner heist. Don't speak too soon, Bill. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I fully agree. I think that there's only so much you can say about the details that are public before it just becomes very redundant and not very productive. We've recently had Turbo Paul Hendry on the show, and uh, he's been a guest on the show a couple of times in season one and season three, and talking about the new uh, method in which to recover the artwork. Real quick, what's your opinion on the current way they are looking to recover the artwork, the museum when I say they, and Turbo Paul's method, which is an individualized price list. I don't want to come in like a ton of bricks, but I think the way the museum has approached the potential recovery of the work, it's completely bizarre. What they've done in recent years makes no sense whatsoever to me. It just doesn't seem like uh, an approach that would cause anyone who is going to be taking a significant risk. In other words, if you come forward, you know, you have to understand that you're taking a significant risk. And if you have all of the paintings or probably much more likely these individual works have been split up, I just the way the museum has approached this, I feel like they behave as if they could somehow dictate to the thieves when I, I think the amount of leverage that the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum has at this point is extremely limited. And so setting up, setting up, things, setting up things with like deadlines and that kind of thing. I, look, I'd love to see someone come forward and return some or all of those masterworks to the museum. It would be the coolest story ever. But there's something about their approach that strikes me as exceptionally arrogant and high-handed. They behave as if they can somehow dictate to the thieves. And they also behave as if all of the works are still together in a, in a unified collection. And I sincerely doubt that. I think they may have been split up as early as spring 1990. Let's revisit the, uh, the art being split up. And I'll put a pin in that. The sort of culture around the museum, I think you can say, has a little bit of that old Boston air to it. Would you agree? Yeah, I would. For for people uh, out there who are not aware, what what is this old Boston air? It's sort of aristocratic? Is it sort of um, working class? What what would you? How would you define this old Boston air? Well, if we're talking about the museum, and and it's its backers, its, um, uh, its sponsors, its uh, uh, patrons, um, to, to use a word that we hear a lot in uh, our world, the podcast world now, you know, it's old money, it's very kind of old New England and a bit conservative. I don't necessarily mean politically conservative, just kind of personally conservative. And even some of the rules that Isabella Stewart Gardner herself set up, like the museum can never be changed, which is why when you go uh, for a visit there, you know you you see the empty frames as this podcast is named. So there's kind of a old school New England we know better attitude. I'm not criticizing, but I think I think we have to acknowledge that and. Even the their approach to how they might engage with people that might know where these works could be found 30 years later, if they're even still out there, I, I don't think the approach has necessarily yielded good results. I mean, I guess the fact that no one's come forward is probably a pretty clear indicator. Or at least no art has surfaced. Yeah, well, and everything I've read says that when you steal something, regardless of what it is, typically a thief can only get 10 cents on the dollar 
on what something is worth because most people don't want to buy stolen whatever. And so we could be talking about car parts here. So you're not going to get a dollar for every dollar of retail price when you're trying to sell something. And I think what happened here is that after the Gardner theft, this became one of those situations where, you know, what if you stole something that was so valuable and so recognizable that you actually couldn't sell it? And I think that's what happened here. I think the thieves got in way over their heads. They ended up with these masterworks that no legitimate museum or art dealer or what have you is going to take and consign or, you know, anything like that. So you end up with all these cool, fun stories, which, you know, we've all shared over a beer about, you know, oh, they're on some island somewhere or some shake has bought them and has them downstairs in his uh, incredible stolen art collection somewhere in, in the Middle East or, or what have you. But the problem is, from a practical standpoint, these thieves ended up with masterworks that they couldn't sell. And so I'm just very curious as to where they've been for the last 30 years and whether there's an opportunity to recover some or all of them. All right. I uh, want to slow down a little bit. I want to go back to what you said about meeting Steve Kirchin and uh, and getting a tour of the gardener with him. And uh, I want to make sure, and I want to be perfectly clear here that I am not jealous that you got a tour of the gardener with Steve Kirchin. I'm not. Okay. I am not jealous at all about that. I want. I want you to know. But I want to know what it was like every minute of it. <laughs> I, I also I also have a question and you can work it into Tim's answer. You reach out to Steve Kirkchen and and he is immediately receptive <laughs> and how do you even introduce yourself and 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 have him agree to meet you? And well, because well I mean I know you're Bill Thomas, but <laughs> it's just really a, <laughs> Is that all you've said? Was well, hey, it's me, Billy T. Papa Bill. Yeah. Papa Bill. I don't know. Uh, for whatever reason, I've always had a lot of luck with getting people to help and to participate. You know, we've had a lot of great uh, guests on our, our podcast, Mind Over Murder. And we suddenly, we surprise ourselves when people say yes. Steve Kirkchin is a longtime writer for the Boston Globe. I didn't know the man. I had thought about writing a book. And this would have been spring 2017, so we're looking at three years ago now. Um, and, you know, I was buying and reading all of the books that I could find on the case. I was living in Los Angeles at that time. We hadn't moved back to New England, where we are now based. And as I made my way through the books, I made a decision to come back to New England. We had another house uh, out here in the Berkshires. Um, where I was going to stay for a couple of weeks and just do some research on the case. And, you know, it would be quiet and I'd have the place to myself and be able to do some writing and preliminary work. And so I reached out to Steve Kirkshen. I think I just, you know, looked him up on whitepages.com or something like that. In other words, I don't think we, we didn't have any friends in common or anything like that, but I managed to get a hold of him. And typically what I'll do is I'll try to find as many working email addresses as I can and as many working phone numbers as I can. And, you know, you send off three or four emails, same email to all the different addresses. Usually a couple of them will come back bad. Um, and then start working the phones, leaving messages and that kind of thing. But I managed to get a hold of Steve. And he's an extremely nice guy, very good writer, very thoughtful. And I told him, you know, what I was thinking about doing. And he said, would you like to meet for lunch? So I drove from the Berkshires into Boston. And he gave me a private tour of the museum. Hang, hang on, hang on. Sorry. He asked you to lunch. He said, would you like to meet for lunch? For Christ's sake. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, mean, I might have said, may I take you to lunch? But either way, he said he said, you know, would you like to come to Boston? Would you like to tour the museum? And we'll go off for lunch afterwards. Actually, that's pretty pretty close to verbatim because I remember him saying, you know, we'll tour the museum and then we'll go off for lunch afterwards. Mm, okay. So 
he's a super nice guy and it just came together. So we made plans for a few days hence and I drove into Boston, met him at the museum and he gave me a complete tour. It was fascinating. He walked me through how he thought the theft had taken place and what his views were. You know, I was reading his book at the time and I was saying to you guys off the air, somehow I didn't get him to autograph my copy of Master Thieves. I should have asked him while he was being so nice. <laughs> well, why don't you just send him another email and he'll probably suggest a copy of his signed book. <laughs> well, I want to bother the guy. He was very gracious. And so we went on a tour and he showed me, you know, all sorts of different, you know, kind of cubbies. And it's a fascinating place for the those listeners that haven't been there. Once this COVID thing settles down, what year would that be? Do plan on getting to Boston and, and going to the Gardner Museum. It's beautiful and it's really a lot of fun. Well spent uh, morning or afternoon. So he walked me through the museum and then he was talking to me about Anthony Amore, who's the head of security for, gosh, it's got to be the last 15 years off the top of my head. And lo and behold, <laughs> we're going up the stairs, I think, and Anthony Amore is coming down the stairs. And Steve Kirkchen, who'd written about Anthony Amore, uh, their eyes meet and they kind of nod. And and then Anthony Amore looks at me like, who's this guy? <laughs> but he didn't say anything. He just kept on going. He obviously had places to be. So we headed upstairs and, you know, did the whole tour. It was absolutely fascinating. And the museum was open. There were other people there. It was you know, springtime three years ago. And then afterwards we went to a pub, which was clearly one of Steve's favorites and uh, had a fantastic lunch and talked for a couple more hours until finally he had to go. And he was just incredibly gracious and funny and he had a lot of insights. And, you know, he knew I'd worked in film and TV in Los Angeles. And so I was asking him, is someone going to option Master Thieves for a movie? Because as I was saying to you guys earlier, I, I think this would make a phenomenal film. And, you know, we, yeah. look, we, I, I know all we ever make in Boston now are crime movies about Boston. But it is a pretty cool story and it is set in Boston. And we do have fantastic tax incentives for creating movies and television shows in Boston. So what was his answer when you asked him that? Did he tell you that it would have been optioned or anything well, he told me later that they were in discussions that they there was some discussion of using master thieves uh for a, a, a film but i don't know what the status is of course they're right now we're not making movies or television shows right uh, well i imagine your time in the gardener was a lot like the end of the movie clue where he was kind of like bouncing around from room to room showing you how the thieves did it is that kind of like what it was yeah, like yeah well not far from that and you know he he talked about the the crudeness of the methods used by some of the um, thieves in terms of removing the works and the fact that he didn't think there was um, a terribly high level of precision or professionalism. Um, I'm not saying he used those exact words, but that was my takeaway. Lance, it's a long winter and the days are starting to get brighter, which is good. But I'm curious, does that interfere with your happiness? Well, Tim, you know, as Cinderella once said, it is a long, cold winter and those are uh, really... Words that speak a lot of truth nowadays. The days are shorter, the sun isn't out as long, and that does affect people. The seasonal depression, and it, it not only affects your happiness, it affects you from achieving your goals. You feel like, what's the point, you know? But there's, there's some help out there. There's some assistance out there. Well, you're right, Lance. And this episode, as you know, is brought to you by BetterHelp. They are our sponsor for this episode, and they are such a great service. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. And Tim, this is not self-help. This is professional counseling. 
So true. And you can send a message to your counselor anytime and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Which is great for you because there's no need to ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Don't get you started on these uncomfortable waiting rooms. And that is reason enough to sign up with BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and even still, financial aid is available. And the service is available for clients worldwide. There is a broad range of expertise available, which might not be locally available in many areas. Licensed professional counselors are specialized in depression, anger, family conflicts, stress, anxiety, LGBTQ matters, grief, relationships, sleeping, self-esteem, trauma. Anything you share, Lance, as you know, is confidential. Exactly. And it is convenient, professional, affordable. And if you don't believe us, check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. It's not a crisis line. This is better help. And in fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. What? Bingo, bango. We want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash empty frames. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash empty frames. I also found that the, as much as I'd read about the thefts in, you know, my stack of books about the Gardner Museum, I think I had all of them. I had such a better understanding of the, how the whole thing worked in terms of the logistics of the amount of time they had in the museum and where everything was. And the fact that they walked past other very, very significant paintings to select the paintings and drawings that they ended up taking almost like they had a shopping list because he said there were other much more uh, spectacular and valuable works which were untouched and it was almost like they were sent in on a on a mission he also showed me how he thought the interaction might have taken place with the guards and the person at the door and that sort of thing we didn't sadly get a chance to go down into the basement to see uh, where the guards had been trussed up with the duct tape and all. So what's your thought on, on that, whether or not they went in there with like a shopping list? I know it seems like that could be the case, but maybe they were just so uh, unaware that they just really did randomly grab these 13 pieces of, well, it wasn't the one of those pieces we're pretty certain was not random. The, um, the the finial or no no the the goo the Chinese goo was mm -hmm. uh, probably a uh, a gift for Miles Connor, but maybe maybe the paintings were just kind of random. It doesn't feel that way to me, Lance. It feels like they came in with specific goals in mind because they passed by other pieces that would have been just as easy, if not easier, to steal, and that that might have been more valuable and it it doesn't feel random to me at all it feels very deliberate yeah i would say the 81 minutes the fact that the thieves were in the museum for 81 minutes is a is a check in the not random department you know what i mean sure. it doesn't seem yeah. like even though it was sort of they were sort of violently cut out of the frame some of them um it doesn't seem like ne the decisions were necessarily hastily made no, and if this was a 10-minute in-and-out smash-and-grab kind of thing, that might make me lean a bit more towards random. But 81 minutes is a long time, and they knew they had a long time. So they're wandering around the museum for, you know, what's that, close to an hour and a half? Yeah, it's basically an hour and a half. I mean... You have to consider the time it would take to, you know, get it out to the car, get in the car, or, or get in the, the getaway vehicle. My white Volkswagen right, GTI. Right, right. You're, you're waiting that. there as a getaway driver. You're white-knuckling right. it down the um, muddy river <laughs> bends. Um, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And let me throw something else in. I think they had the, uh, the absolute full cooperation of the guards. I, I think this is, this, to me, screams inside job. Okay. So... Not only does it feel like 
They had the full cooperation of the guards. They had nearly an hour and a half inside the museum. And so on some level, it feels well-planned. And I, I don't know. There's something about, especially when Steve took me to all these odd little places in the museum where, you know, and you walk past much fancier and not necessarily massive. I'm talking about scale. You know, obviously some paintings could be hard to move, physically move, especially in frame, that it, it, the whole thing just doesn't feel random at all, especially when he took me and said, and here and here, and here's where the finial was and that kind of thing. I was like, you know, you just passed by. There's hundreds of other pieces of artwork. The place is chock-a-block, you know, in some cases almost floor to ceiling with painting, 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 drawing. You know, there's a lot of stuff to choose from. They chose particular works, and I think they chose them for a reason. So they were given instructions then from a, a higher authority who had pretty—I mean, who had knowledge of where these paintings were. But what would be the point of passing over one one painting for Storm on the Sea of Galilee? You would be passing over another painting because you know maybe this is Rembrandt's only seascape, for example. So. My question is, do you think that it was somebody who had a deep knowledge of the Dutch Renaissance and, and fine art in general? Yes, in my opinion. And, you know, again, this is just one guy's viewpoint. I'm not saying I'm right and someone else is wrong. I just, this is the way it feels to me. And I don't necessarily think that the actual thieves were all that sophisticated back to Tim's point about the fact that some of the paintings were treated roughly and things weren't cut out of the frames in a very thoughtful manner, which you would should be doing with works that are this valuable. You, you know, I'm, I'm not a museum expert, but I'm certainly respectful and you know, everything I know about people that work in the art preservation field, you know, you see them with the, white gloves and the, and, and the, the HVAC system and, and everything is perfectly controlled and they, they're careful about heat and humidity and light and all this stuff. And then these guys come along and are, you know, hacking them out of the frames. And Steve showed me how they, they did all that. It, it was very, very interesting, but I, I think somebody's driving the selection who I think does have an eye for fine art, but I don't necessarily think they were there that night when the theft actually took place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think when you look at it from that angle, the Chinese goo seems to really stand out. Mm -hmm. um, and Lance, you mentioned that before. Uh, it was in Miles Connor's book uh, that he co-wrote with Jenny Seiler, who's been on these airwaves. Um, where he basically says that him and Bobby Donati cased the gardener and Bobby Donati knew how much he loved Asian art and uh, things like that. And I believe he mentioned that finial at one point. There was some connection to that. Or, or I'm sorry, the the goo, the Chinese goo uh, was potentially for Miles Connor. Uh, the right. finial is still a bit um, confusing. But I would also say that there was a track record of Rembrandts being stolen at least uh, once by Miles Connor and his crew um, to get himself a lesser prison sentence. So, sure. And that happened in, in Boston. That was the get out of jail free card, wasn't right, it? Right, at the MFA. So that was one, one you know, clue as to maybe who could have had some, or they were at least aware of what happened with Miles Connor in that story. But the fact that the goo was taken and the Rembrandt, um, I would have to say that 
it suggests that someone at least is very aware of Miles Connor who did this, you know. And then with the Vermeers, there is a history of the IRA uh, really liking Vermeers, even stolen Vermeers. So that could be right. someone with knowledge right. of that as well. Well, and, you know, I love the IRA connection being Irish and being from Boston and uh, not necessarily an IRA supporter, but I find that potential avenue of distribution post theft to be absolutely fascinating. It, I've actually, one of the things I've actually thought about is because none of us know what happened, I've even thought about, you know, rather than just try to write a straight up narrative, I thought, you know, it might be fun to just do a what if, <laughs> you know, where maybe the paintings did end up on a trawler that went off to Ireland and they were used as payment or um, security for guns or other items that the IRA would have needed. I want to back up really briefly, and, and we don't have to get too hung up on uh, the theories of, of who stole the paintings, but if someone was given the direct, if someone was giving the direction to the two thieves that went in that night and they had knowledge of fine art, why on earth wouldn't they instruct them to take the paintings in a more gentle way in order to preserve them? I mean, the paint chips were on the floor. They pretty much like nearly destroyed them just simply by folding them and or or transporting them. I don't know. Well, I want to know, Bill. Speaking frankly, when you read about some of the guys that were involved, in, potentially involved in this case, some of these guys are not rocket scientists. They might have been ballsy enough to be involved in the crime world in Boston in the 80s and 90s. A lot of them ended up dead. A lot of them are not necessarily the highest wattage bulbs in the marquee. I think I've just mixed my metaphors there. It was beautiful, though. But they were fun metaphors, weren't they? I, I, I don't think these guys are necessarily all that bright. They are, they're ballsy, and they can follow instructions to a certain level. You know, you're right. It is kind of horrifying that someone's going to steal a multi-million dollar painting or drawing and then fold the damn thing up, you know, potentially damaging the painting. And of course, you know, our archivist friends are just dying a thousand deaths going, oh my gosh, you know, don't treat the paintings and drawings that way. And they're right, but I'm, I'm going to be blunt. I just don't think the, these thieves are necessarily the smartest guys you know, I think that's fair, and I think what uh, what we kind of said is fair, too, that they were likely not the main brain behind the operation. Um, and we've sort of heard varying reports on how damaged the paintings would be. I, I know that right. the razor right. blades would certainly damage them, but as far as, like, rolling them up, I think there's some, some varying opinions. I know um, Anthony Amore, security director, says that if the storm of the sea had been rolled up in the way that Tom Mashberg describes having seen it in a warehouse right. in Brooklyn. Supposedly. That, supposedly, allegedly. It's um, a great story. I'm not sure yeah. whether it happened that way or not. But Amore says that it couldn't have really been folded up that way or rolled up that way without uh, losing significant paint chips. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I don't know. Matt Mashberg is sure. He says right here in Master Thieves, he says... On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say close to 10, he said. He said it was either the original or a close replica. And we know the paint chips are very, very interesting. And he was there and we weren't, and he may be right. He might have actually seen the paintings. But there's a, um, like a long history of evidence to support what Anthony Amore said. I mean, all of those paintings, all of the portraits used an, an incredible amount of paint and lacquer and finish and over and over and over. And... It would have been like I think I think it is his quote saying it would have been like almost like like a board at that point to roll it to roll it into tubes is like almost impossible. But how would he know? It's not like he, he had seen it and it's not like he had held it without a frame. No, no. I think he's going by every other like I think he's going by every other like art his, like historian or art restoration like that time period it was pretty consistent that it was mm -hmm. so much lacquer so much finish on that. So then a lot of the paint chips would fall off if they did indeed roll it up. 
I would I would think that most of them would have, yeah. I, I think the potential for damage is great. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know. I, I'm not I'm not thinking that because it's rolled up that means that it's not it. Well right. just and look, somebody may have made a foolish decision. You know, uh, Anthony Amore may be right, and you know, and he knows a, a lot about protecting fine art. And you're absolutely right. It probably could have easily resulted in damage, and someone may have done that without, you know, full knowledge that you know you're you're now just doing irreparable harm to a painting that you know whose value is in the tens of millions of dollars but you know if they did it it is what it is and as far as splitting the art up after it was stolen how do you guys feel about that for me i think that's very very likely there there's no incentive to keep all of the paintings together and if you could sell them off and again they're not the most marketable things i've ever seen because stolen anything isn't particularly all that marketable i don't know man i i really don't know i think if they were split up that's 13 opportunities for a single painting to be seen or to have resurfaced somewhere i just think it's been so long that they all have to be together and unfortunately i think they're probably all together buried or or sunk somewhere and the person who did that probably took that to their grave and i don't i don't know how many people they would have told what is frightening is that in the 30 years since the theft a lot of people who were on the suspect list are dead and so you know these are guys that lived on the edge there was a tremendous amount of drugs a lot you know a lot of cocaine a lot of crack and a lot, you know and then some of these guys met violent ends so in terms of the actual thieves, the people that went in and took the paintings and drawings and left the museum that night with the two guards allegedly tied up in the basement, there's a good chance that those guys are dead. And so it, it following the trail now gets harder and harder. And then you're absolutely right. I agree that you split the works up and they go 13 different ways. I suppose it does give you more opportunity for one or more of them to surface. But, you know, if somebody with, say, you know, DuPont money down in Delaware decides they want to have one of those pieces hanging in their private gallery down in, in their country home, you know, that could happen. They would have sold it most likely if that if that was the case. So yeah, yeah. I I I, th- I don't think they're together. And um, I think I think if you play it out, Lance, l- let's play this out a little bit. If we if we pulled off some kind of art heist and there were several pieces like that, and there were you know several other people involved, and all of a sudden people started dying from it. I mean, I think then you're really incentivized to separate it because it could save your life, the fact that they're separate. It's like, oh, well, I know where the other one is. Don't kill me. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, no, you're right. Um, if you and I were to pull it off, uh, literally, if you and I were the two uh, individuals dressed as Boston police officers and we went in there under the instruction of somebody else, like a, and obviously we know that this person who's giving us the instruction probably is a dangerous person because we wouldn't be doing this um, if we didn't take this person seriously. I think we would we would have them all together. We we would leave the museum in the getaway car. There might be a third person there. Drive to a mutually agreed upon neutral location where the car could be stored, maybe undercover or, or I'm sorry, the getaway vehicle with the paintings in them could be stored undercover for someone to later pick up, someone who's also under the instruction of the person who uh, directed us to, to rob the museum. And that way we don't know what happened to them. So if we were literally doing that, you and I, the two individuals dressed as cops, we probably don't have that information after we have dropped off the the paintings or dropped off the car at a at a mutually agreed upon neutral location at that point i think when those paintings get picked up you have people probably at our level 
in organized crime, picking that up for this person. And by the time it gets to that person, I think the news has come out about the value. And then I don't know where I would go from there. If I was that person initiating the entire thing and I hear how hot these things are, I might put them aside and hope that it's going to cool off. Maybe. See, that's where I'm, I'm, I, I come to a, like the end of my hypothetical. Right, but the whole purpose of taking them in the first place was to separate them, most likely. I mean, we don't know that, I guess, but you would think the purpose of taking them was to either sell them or use them for some purpose, whether that be display or what. That makes sense. Well, and let's not forget that Miles Connor had used a Rembrandt, if I'm not mistaken, he did. previously as the get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah, I right. think he's he's the one avenue that is pretty kind of directly uh, circumstantially uh, involved. You know, at least at least someone he knew, and he was in prison at the time, so it wasn't him. But uh, it was definitely, I would say, some people he. I don't know that he was the mastermind, but I I just think it was some people he liked or knew. Well, everything I've read, and it's funny, I actually, you know, they're there's a couple of things that are worth noting. First of all, Connor and that crew that he ran with were involved in thefts throughout New England. I know that out here in Western Massachusetts, they stole paintings at Williams College. They stole from their beautiful art museum. I went to the Amherst College uh, Museum where they stole paintings from that college uh, museum. I, and again, these, they knew where the work was located and they knew that the security at a lot of these smaller museums wasn't that great. And they clearly had thought about who would actually buy the paintings. It's not a long list of people that would have enough money and be of, you know, shaky enough background, shady enough background to be willing to engage in the stolen art business. So, you know, the number of potential thieves is not that long, particularly if you're going to mix in somebody who has a sophisticated eye and a background in fine art. And then the list of potential buyers isn't that long either. There's been a lot of reporting about the paintings being spotted near Hartford, Connecticut, at, supposedly at a used car lot in like Berlin or somewhere like, you know, it's not too far from where our house is here, Connecticut, where, which was a mob front. And uh, some people say they saw the finial there on display at this used car. <laughs> I picture almost like a trailer or something, um, you know, at this kind of nondescript used car lot. And so, and the, you know, the, the FBI spent a tremendous amount of time digging around in the, in the backyard of this guy who is getting on in years, who, you know, claims not to have any knowledge of, of the whereabouts of these paintings. But there are a lot of stories that have the paintings go, going very quickly. So we're talking about probably 1990 to Connecticut. And then there are other stories that have them being uh, sent down to Philadelphia and then perhaps distributed from there. Hence my DuPont joke of earlier. Do you think that that's a realistic possibility? That it could have the, been? The Philadelphia thing, yes. The no, DuPont, the DuPont thing? So no, no. I'm just, I was trying to think of who would have enough money uh, and a big, big enough private homes and a background in fine art, and I just picked the DuPonts at, at random. Well, you know, it kind of brings us back to our point of the recovery process. Right now, there's three of us, and each of us have our, our opinions just based on the research we've done. And, you know, a couple of us are thinking, you know, they're probably definitely all together. Or a couple of us are thinking, no, they're probably split up because of this. And you and we all gave pretty good reasons why. Uh, we're, and we're not professionals is what I'm saying. We're not on the FBI. We're not on the board of trustees for the museum. 
why is it so hard to uh, change the way they want to recover? Or why is it so hard to change their current recovery process? Why can't they work with the FBI and say, we want to we don't know if we've tried this for 30 years. We don't know if it, if they're together or separate, we have arguments that can be, you know, supported either way, very strongly supported either way. So maybe after 30 years, we should try an individualized, uh, broken down price list. Maybe, maybe they're waiting for 31 years. I don't know. It's just logical enough to work. Well, and tie <laughs> and tie two threads together that you've mentioned, Lance, you mentioned something a couple of minutes ago, which is worth highlighting, which is none of us know how the paintings and drawings have been stored and they could have deteriorated significantly. I mean, you said buried and I winced because that is definitely a possibility, but obviously, you know, anybody that's ever stored anything in their basement knows that, you know, basements, the Northeast, you know, you could have all kinds of problems with mold and insects and heat and cold. I just, you know, took 10 cans of, of old paint from our house to the dump, um, recycling center, whatever. And, you know, when I talked to our painters about it, they said just the, the fact that the paint had sat in our garage unheated for a couple of years, the, the cooling and heating cycles of a New England weather, you know, plunging all the way down to, you know, well below zero, uh, well below freezing, had done this paint, which was in cans, a tremendous amount of damage. Remember now, you know, delicately applied pencil lines and, and paint and so on to canvas and paper and so on these paintings and drawings could be in terrible shape by now. Right. Okay. You made me think of something because I was going to make a joke and say, what are the odds that whoever directed this theft has access to a climate controlled, like <laughs> exactly hum, hum, like humidor, uh, a walk-in humidor. And then I thought about a climate controlled storage facility, which exists Plenty of those exist around the area. And oh, even sure. in 1990, yeah. what, what's the chances that they're sitting in some climate-controlled storage unit that just hasn't been looked at because there's been no connection to this? Maybe, maybe it's under someone else's name, and they're just quietly sitting there. Sure. Although, you know, who's paying the bills and why? And would you really want to steal something which, as I said at the top, is so valuable and so well-known that it's essentially unrealistic, you're unable to sell it. But I think it is. You can sell it. It's just, you know, it's there's not a lot of buyers. That's definitely true. Um, there might only be one buyer, but there's someone out there who would make a deal for this artwork. And, and you know, besides the FBI and the gardener, but, you know, I think... I think it would be easier for sure if you are a thief or even just someone with the stolen artwork, even one piece of it, to be like, oh, okay, I'll give this back or I'll get something out of this. You could actually get a reward if there was a reward price list. True. Let's just play this hypothetical. little thought experiment. There is a person who is connected to the person who directed the, the theft, who directed the heist. This person is not of blood relation, just a friend and acquaintance, and does not know about the theft. Now, the person who directed the heist tells this other person, listen, I'll give you $1,000 if you can just go, say, into this diner, and if the, if the waiter or waitress seems friendly, offer them another $1,000 to put their name on a storage unit, no questions asked, they get 500 bucks a month just to hold it and they go down and they pay for it in cash. Like three, three times removed from the person and pretty impossible for somebody to, to triangulate on. Well, let, let me just say that if the, the one, the storm that, uh, the storm in the sea that Tom Mashberg saw, that was in a storage unit in Brooklyn. So that one was obviously looked at by the FBI. So they found out how that was, done and if we are to assume that that could have been real or that was the real painting 
and then they were, or at least one of them was at a storage facility. So I would assume a couple things here. Assume that they're, they are in bad condition for sure. Um, and I think a warehouse is a really safe assumption, whether that was the real storm or not, I think. I'd agree. I, I think a warehouse, some facility that had store, uh, climate control. Oh, agreed. I mean, if you're going to do it right, you are going to have to protect these works from damage and, you know, all the things, the horrible things I was thinking about, you know, sticking in somebody's attic or basement or whatever. Or when you said burying, I thought, oof, you know, these things are going to be completely shot. Yeah. And, but I could say, well, if they cared about the quality, they wouldn't have cut them out of the frames, but also they were put, you know, they, they, they were putting them into a very small vehicle, uh, hatchback even. And I don't even know if the frames would have actually, I don't think the frames for no, the storm. I, I think that's why they, yeah. and according to what Steve Kirchin told me, he said it was a size thing that they were trying to fit more paintings in less space. Humble brag. You know, well, no, it's, what, it's what, it's what Kirchin said to me, uh, when, Right before he took the check at lunch and, and insisted, <laughs> tore the check out of my hands. Yes, and said he had to buy lunch because I was such an interesting guy. Uh, no, I, 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 it seems to me that, no, he was saying, look, if they probably should have had a van if they were going to take the paintings and frames. How do we know they didn't have a van? Oh, uh, I'm just saying the car that was seen outside uh, it sounded like, from what I've read and heard, was a a smaller vehicle. Yeah, yeah. I I guess I always pictured the um that being sort of the the move around vehicle for the thieves, and the paintings were delivered into a bigger vehicle, like a van. Like maybe the van was parked there on Palace Road or or on one of the adjacent streets or something. And then, and then swung around at a certain time or. Yeah. I guess if that's true, we, we don't know it. Um, yeah, because we, we know the, uh, that hatchback is, uh, or we believe that's where the, the robbers came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there, there could have definitely been a second or third even vehicle involved at some point, larger ones. Um, but yeah, at least not in the very beginning. Yeah. Bill, I'm not sure if you know this, being in Boston from 1987 to 1990, but currently right there on Palace Road where they gained access into the museum right across the street, I believe it's Simmons College. I think it's the security office of Simmons College. They have security or college police cars and SUVs parked right in that area. Was that there back in 1990 during the uh, heist? I don't think so. And of course, when I talk about the Colonial Parkway murders to schools and universities, I'm often asked about um, security cameras and that kind of thing. And it, it, I always have to note that those are much more of a recent phenomenon, you know, post 9-11 and so on. So I don't think the, seems to me there were apartments or something like that on the other side of the street. Uh, I think there was at least like dormitories there. Yeah, something else. And I don't think the security office for the college was there at that point. Okay. It's funny. I was also thinking about something, which is clearly you guys need to have Miles Connor come and, and join you on the on the show. Oh, well, we, we've, we've tried, but he was um, on the podcast last scene and had an exclusivity clause and was not able to join us. That's okay, though. Um, I want to come back to Miles Connor, though, because we were talking about how um, he was in jail during the time, so he really wasn't uh, directly involved if he was involved at all. And you mentioned maybe he was the mastermind of the whole thing. Well, he right. certainly didn't profit from it because he doesn't live like somebody who currently does not live like somebody who uh, is, I guess, uh, living large. He's not, he's not, what's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's not Dr. No sitting back with his brandy. Well, and I don't necessarily think that most people that worked that side of the law necessarily ended up rich living on an island somewhere. <laughs> By the way, you know, there's a lengthy story, um, dated March 14th, 2020 in the Boston Globe, how the Gardner Museum's security had befriended the greatest art thief that ever lived. So clearly, whatever restrictions Miles 
Connor was living under have, have been lifted because here he is having lunch with Anthony Amore at uh, La Scala in, in in Randolph. Yeah, probably going to get Chinese with Rick Abbott after. Yeah, well, you should have Rick Abbott on. <laughs> that guy knows more than he's ever said. Shots fired. You're aware of this. You're aware of this because uh, you're the guy who greased that palm. No, 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 no. I'm just <laughs> offering a citizen's theory. Now, okay. when you were walking through the museum with Steve Kirkjian, was it really um, an adrenaline rush to have him explain the heist and the to you? Because you're like, well, that's not how he did it, but that's a nice try, Steve. Oh, no, I'm not going to challenge Steve Kirkjian on his level of knowledge. I'm just like, really? Wow. You know, tell me more. (laughs) Can I take pictures in here? You know, that kind of thing. No, I, you know, look, these guys know way more about this than I do. I was just there to listen and learn. It It was a fascinating afternoon. All right. Well, don't brag about it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, you know, we've managed to go this far in this podcast without mentioning two words that must be mentioned every time this case comes up. Can can we guess? Whitey Bulger. Well, uh, Bill, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, the guest on episode one of Empty Frame season three was, of course, author of Hunting Whitey, Casey Sherman. And uh, he threw a fastball right down the middle with uh, with this book, uh, Bill, and uh, and it, it struck out every batter, and uh, it's really great. And and you know, I in the book he he ha- clearly has some relationships with the FBI. Learned that Whitey felt comfortable saying he did not know anything about where the artwork was, and in fact, him and his friend gave some beatings. I believe I believe there was several beatings that they gave to people to try to get the information about where the artwork was or who did it. And to what Whitey said when he was in prison, per Casey Sherman's wonderful book, Whitey never found out. Hmm. And here we were thinking that Whitey Bulger knew everything, at least in Boston in the 1980s. Now, do you think Whitey Bulger would have been smart enough, had he pulled this off, smart enough to then create this ruse that he was going around asking people and acting as though he was enraged that this happened on his turf right under his nose without his approval and without him benefiting. Do you think that he could have pulled this off and then put up this front? It's an interesting idea. Yes. Yeah, I could see him doing that. I just solved it. It's in some climate-controlled storage facility. Uh-huh. We need to know... Under William Bulger. Under under William, under Schmilliam Schmalger. <laughs> and who's paying the bills? That's what I want to know. Who's paying the X dollars per month for the climate-controlled storage facility? Steve Kirkjian. Anthony Amore. (laughs) No, I think. Oh, come on! I think if Anthony Amore could solve this thing, he'd be more than happy to. I have to agree there. I did go to see uh, Anthony Amore speak. I think it was in Randolph or someplace like that, outside of Boston. Did he invite you to lunch too? He did not. He did not. But he gave a fantastic you know, PowerPoint discussion, uh, presentation and, um, his lovely girlfriend was there and they had stacks of books and I, I bought a couple of books and I introduced myself to him and, and chatted with him. He was very friendly and nice and, um, terrific, very compelling presentation, not just about the gardener theft, but about art theft in general. And it was really, really interesting. Well attended, Great response from the audience and, um, you know, well worthwhile. Oh, my God. Don't. Can you dish on somebody? Can you spill the tea on somebody? Well, I, you know, I think I started by dishing on the museum and I don't necessarily agree with the approach that Anthony Amore and the museum have taken at all. You know, I, I think I started by saying I thought their approach was 
ham-handed and arrogant and they behave as if they can dictate. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not failing to dish. Now, when you saw Anthony Amore in Randolph and when he inevitably locked eyes with you during his uh, speech, did he <laughs> give you a dirty look like he did at the Gardner that day? No, but I did remind him that I had seen him a couple of days before at at the museum. Oh, you did for real? I'm just kidding, by the way. He's not. No, no, no. He he I, you know, I thought, oh, what the heck? Let's bring it up. So I told him, you know, I was the guy that was giving getting the private tour with. What he said the other day and he was like, oh, you know, I, I, I saw Steve, you know, he's there pretty frequently and, you know, we know each other pretty well, but I wasn't quite sure, you know, what he was doing there that particular day. He was, you know, he was friendly enough about it. Did you tell him to get a reward price list going? That's a really good idea. I didn't know about that idea um, at, at the time, but it's a, it's an, you know, I, I think the, I think they need to have a big asterisk on the price list based on condition. <laughs> well, that's what uh, Turbo has said. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and honestly, I think this, this issue comes back all the way around to the beginning of our conversation, uh, which is sort of about old Boston um, and, and that sort of air that the gardener has. And I think that is ultimately maybe what's holding up why they can't adjust the price li- or, or make a price list. Well, and supposedly the insurance company who would be, I think, paying you know, this um, reward or whatever, um, bribe, what, whatever we want to call Don't it. Don't call it a bribe. You said bribe. <laughs> the, I think the insurance company is involved. And my limited experience with insurance companies in corporate and organizational settings is they want to dictate everything before they lay out any cash. Their their goal is to extract as much money as they can from you and never pay you for any losses whatsoever. Okay, Bill. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Empty Frames today. Is there anything else you'd like to add to uh, to this topic here in this episode? No, I'm really glad you guys are doing this podcast. I think it's an endlessly fascinating case and worth talking about. And I find every time I talk to people about this case, I'll also meet people that know nothing about it. And they find the whole thing fascinating as I do. So I'm really glad you guys are doing this. Um, It just goes to show you that you can have Bill Thomas on any one of these programs and take up over an hour and just be completely comfortable with that, that olive oil voice, <laughs> anything you could have told me in that voice that, that, that you were the, you know, the, the, the cop on the left that went down <laughs> to the boiler room with, with the Rick Abbott and, and tied him up and, and you sunk that razor blade into the storm <laughs> on the sea of Galilee. And I would have been like, whatever, whatever, Papa Bill, it's yeah. all good. I, I, I learned from that that theft and I've done better work since (laughs) where are the paintings 